0: Welcome to the election ride home for Friday, November twenty second, twenty nineteen. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news today. Sanders hits four million donations. Bloomberg files paperwork on his way to an announcement. The Senate impeachment trial might have a shorter timeline than expected. We now know how few people actually watched Wednesday's debate. Initial debate polling shows very minor changes the Trump impeachment stuff in five minutes or less, Warren's two-part plan to implement Medicare for All, and the Buttigieg campaign's plan for preemptively fighting fake video. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up, much of today's show will be catching up on bits and pieces of news from earlier in the week that were eclipsed by the debate and the impeachment inquiry. First among those, Senator Bernie Sanders passed a major milestone. He has now received more than 4 million individual donations to his campaign. So let's put that in context. First up, it's donations, so it doesn't mean 4 million individual people gave that money. But still, that is a lot of individual transactions. Part of how Sanders achieved this giant number was through monthly recurring payments. Reading from an article by Michelle Yehi-Lee in the Washington Post, quote, About one quarter of donations so far came from online supporters signed up to automatically give money monthly, officials said. More than 175,000 people have signed up to donate a set amount each month, similar to a monthly subscription service, end quote. So of the 4 million donations, it sounds like about 1 million came from these kind of set-it-and-forget-it monthly payments not bad at all, and reminiscent of charitable donations which encourage the same kind of thing in order to have predictable ongoing revenue. The other notable figure here is when Sanders met this milestone. He reached it on Tuesday, November 19th. But in his previous campaign for president, four years ago, it took him until sometime in February of 2016. In other words, he's running about three months ahead of where he was last time. Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg has filed paperwork declaring his statement of candidacy in the Democratic primary. His campaign submitted the forms to the Federal Election Commission. And although his aide said that this isn't an official announcement that he's running, this is as official as it gets. All that remains is for Bloomberg to release a YouTube video saying he's running. So legally, yes, he's running. That is it. No more mystery. Bloomberg's campaign committee is called Mike Bloomberg 2020. I would expect Bloomberg to start releasing things like announcement videos very soon, probably on Monday. For what it's worth, the political press have taken this filing as an official announcement, myself included. Bloomberg is now on my spreadsheet of major candidates with a campaign start date of November 21st, 2019. That brings the total Democratic field back up to 18 candidates. The longest in the field is Delaney, who has been running for 847 days. Yang is close behind him at 746 days. The shortest two are Patrick at 8 days. And, of course, Bloomberg at just one day. Now, if you told me six months ago that new candidates would still be joining this race in late November, I would have asked you to buy a certain bridge in New York City. But then again, I bet Mayor Bloomberg could have bought it first. Next up, some news on the possible timeline for a Senate impeachment trial. This is very relevant to the Democratic primary because so many Democrats running for president are also senators. And if existing Senate procedures don't change, those senators will be required to silently attend the hearing six days a week for as long as it takes. That could really hurt their ability to campaign in early voting states, especially if the trial occurs in January. Remember, the Iowa caucus is on February 3rd. Reading from a report by Sung Moon Kim and Josh Dawsey in the Washington Post, quote, A group of Republican senators and senior White House officials met privately Thursday to map out a strategy for a potential impeachment trial of President Trump, including rapid proceedings in the Senate that could be limited to about two weeks, according to multiple officials familiar with the talks. The prospect of an abbreviated trial is viewed by several Senate Republicans as a favorable middle ground, substantial enough to give the proceedings credence without risking greater damage to Trump by dragging on too long. Under this scenario, described by officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to recount a private meeting, the Senate trial could begin as early as January, if the Democratic-controlled House votes to impeach Trump next month, as appears increasingly likely. End quote. For comparison, the Clinton impeachment trial in the Senate lasted five weeks. So, two weeks is quick, but not wildly quick. The other notable item here is that senators apparently considered the option of simply dismissing the trial altogether, which would only take 51 votes. But that option was rejected for multiple reasons, one of them being that there might not be 51 votes to dismiss this thing without a trial. Furthermore, President Trump himself said this morning that he wants a trial and doesn't want a vote to dismiss anyway. So the key questions now are when it starts and how long it takes. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY
1: at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence
0: journey today with Byte. Next up, we have some viewership data, aka ratings, for Wednesday's DNC debate. According to a story by Joe Flint in the Wall Street Journal, this debate had, quote, the smallest audience so far, end quote. The number of actual viewers was estimated by Nielsen at about 6.6 million TV viewers, plus about 1.3 million streaming viewers. Now, let's compare that to the previous debate. The CNN debate in October got about 8.5 million viewers on TV, plus even more streaming viewers. So, yeah, this is a substantial decline. Now, why did this debate have such low numbers? Well, one key factor is that it was on cable. Overall, all the cable-only debates have gotten lower TV ratings because a lot of folks don't have cable. But of course, last month's debate was also cable-only on CNN. So why the decline? Reading from the journal, quote, It came after a long day of impeachment hearings that aired on cable news channels, which may have contributed to political fatigue for viewers. quote. And sticking with the debate for a moment, we have some post-debate polling from 538 and Ipsos. Now, this polling was done online in multiple waves. The first wave was before the debate, and then after the debate using a subset of the first group. So the procedure here is start with a big group, ask them a bunch of baseline questions, then ask the same group again after the debate so you know what changed. The last wave of polling here started right after the debate and ended yesterday. Just to give you a sense of the low viewership of this debate, of the more than 2,000 respondents who were asked, only 757 actually said they watched it. And these are the kind of people who are intentionally spending time on responding to polls about Democratic primaries and caucuses. The margin of error is plus or minus 2.3% in matters related to the debate. So what did we learn? Big picture, not much changed. There were very minor movements in how people saw the various candidates. On the key question, the question of who voters thought could in fact defeat President Trump in a general election, only one of the candidates actually had any movement that was outside the margin of error, and that was just barely. That was Mayor Pete Buttigieg with a pickup of 3.3%. Remember, the margin is 2.3% he still ended up with a post-debate average of 49.5% in this question of who can beat Trump. That puts him in fourth place behind Biden, Sanders, and Warren. And guess where all of those candidates were before this debate? Same order. Slightly different numbers, but same order. So, yeah. Link in the show notes for more data and lots more analysis. And now, the impeachment news in roughly five minutes. Yesterday, we had public testimony by Fiona Hill and David Holmes. Hill is a former Russia expert on the National Security Council, and Holmes works at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine. Now, the big headlines really came from Hill. She testified that, as an expert on Russia, she is concerned that Russia has succeeded in dividing the U.S. over political issues. And this is really where the impeachment inquiry intersects with the 2020 election, which is part of why I'm covering this news to begin with. I'm going to play a clip from Hill's opening statement. This is actually more efficient in making her points than me trying to summarize them. And listen especially for the part near the end where she compares Russia under President Putin to a super PAC operating in the U.S. election. Listen in.
1: The impact of the successful 2016 Russian campaign remains evident today. Our nation is being torn apart. Truth is questioned. Our highly professional and expert career foreign service is being undermined. U.S. support for Ukraine, which continues to face armed Russian aggression, has been politicized. The Russian government's goal is to weaken our country, to diminish America's global role, and to neutralize a perceived U.S. threat to Russian interests. President Putin and the Russian security services aim to counter U.S. foreign policy objectives in Europe, including in Ukraine, where Moscow wishes to reassert political and economic dominance. I say this not as an alarmist, but as a realist. I do not think long-term conflict with Russia is either desirable or inevitable. I continue to believe that we need to seek ways of stabilizing our relationship with Moscow, even as we counter their efforts to harm us. Right now, Russia's security services and their proxies have geared up to repeat their interference in the 2020 election. We are running out of time to stop them. In the course of this investigation, I would ask that you please not promote politically-driven falsehoods that so clearly advance Russian interests. As Republicans and Democrats have agreed for decades, Ukraine is a valued partner of the United States, and it plays an important role in our national security. And as I told the committee last month, I refuse to be part of an effort to legitimize an alternate narrative that the Ukrainian government is a U.S. adversary and that Ukraine, not Russia, attacked us in 2016. These fictions are harmful even if they are deployed for purely domestic political purposes. President Putin and the Russian security services operate like a super PAC. They deploy millions of dollars to weaponize our own political opposition research and false narratives. When we are consumed by partisan rancor, we cannot combat these external forces as they they seek to divide us against each other, degrade our institutions, and destroy the faith of the American people in our democracy.
0: So beyond all that, Hill and Holmes offered a variety of testimony about the Ukraine deal and Giuliani and Sondland, you name it. I can summarize that by saying it largely confirms other testimony we've heard. But it sums it up in terms of the danger of conflating partisan politics with national security. And that's what career diplomats are all about. They are non-partisan officials. Hill clearly thought she was working to serve the country, not to serve a political purpose. And that's where her conflict with Sondland came from. Reading from a summary by Michael D. Shear in the New York Times, quote, Her testimony made it clear that Dr. Hill, a longtime Russia expert, saw the pressure campaign on Ukraine as a purely political effort that had nothing to do with confronting corruption in Ukraine, the explanation that Mr. Trump and Republicans have frequently given for his actions. Under questioning from the top Republican counsel on the House Intelligence Committee, Dr. Hill said she confronted Gordon D. Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union, about his failure to coordinate with other members of the administration and later realized she was being involved in a domestic political errand, and we were being involved in national security, foreign policy. Dr. Hill said she had told Mr. Sondland at the time that this is all going to blow up, and here we are. End quote. At this point, there is no more public testimony scheduled in the House impeachment inquiry. It is certainly possible that more could come up, but the broad expectation is that this is the end of that phase. Next, the House Intelligence Committee will draft a report and deliver that report to the House Judiciary Committee for further consideration. I will keep you posted as this all develops, but the pace of impeachment news should slow down for a bit until after Thanksgiving. Next up, let's deal with a policy proposal that was mentioned in the debate on Wednesday, but oops, I had not mentioned it on this podcast before. It came out last week, and it is Warren's two-part plan to implement Medicare for All. Long story short, Warren would start with adding a public option to Obamacare. This would require Congress to act, of course, but this is a much likelier thing to pass than the full Medicare for All plan. Then, several years into her presidency, Warren would push for a second vote in Congress, which would be the full Medicare for All bill. In addition to all this, Warren would immediately issue a bunch of executive orders doing what a president can do, which is of course somewhat limited, to control key drug prices and undo a variety of Trump's existing orders related to healthcare. Part of this new plan appears to be a recognition of the partisan makeup of the Senate. At the moment, Democrats just don't have the votes to get much done. And even if Democrats do pick up Senate seats in 2020, getting to a majority in the Senate will be extremely difficult. It's at the very margin of possibility. And even if that majority happens, it will include moderate Democrats from red states who are likely to vote for something like a public option, at least to start with. And, by the way, maybe after a few years and another midterm election, that Senate makeup could change just a tad. So that is the simplest version of this rather complex plan that I can offer you. There's a link in the show notes to a good explainer in Vox that lays out a bunch more details, and of course, a link to the actual detailed plan. And our last story this week is quick, but also fascinating. It gets at the technological challenges we're about to face in our elections. Stuff that we haven't seen yet, but people who track this stuff say we are definitely going to see soon. Reading from a tweet by Alex Kors, who is a Wall Street Journal reporter on the election security beat. Quote, Buttigieg's campaign security officer says, We keep the mayor in front of a camera basically all his waking hours. So if a bad actor pushes a manipulated video, they can fact check it. Hat tip to Joseph Marx. End quote. Marx is, by the way, a Washington Post reporter who also works on cybersecurity and election security. But anyway, this is a fascinating strategy intended to fight a possible dystopian future. If you have video that your campaign owns and maintains, documenting essentially the 24-7 actions of your candidate, in theory, you can fight back if somebody tries to publish a fake or doctored video. And while I have not seen much in the way of fake video in the mainstream in this election cycle, that is probably coming. So maybe yet another requirement for a modern presidential campaign is just letting people film you all the time. Gee, that sounds fun, right? Ugh. Well, that's it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. The end of yet another big news week, and I am keen to get to that nice long Thanksgiving weekend soon. Around the house, I'm planting our holiday flower bulbs today. That's amaryllis and narcissus and a few hyacinths. These are all either fragrant or beautiful or both. And I probably should have planted them a month or two ago, but, you know, I got lazy. I hope you all have a restful weekend, and we've got just a few more shows before that holiday break. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.